You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, we're going to be talking about a brand new, massive, 3 billion emails and passwords were just leaked online and what that means to you and what you can do about it. Some very interesting regulatory changes that are occurring and what that means to everyone. We're going to talk about school vulnerability to cybersecurity attacks, why those are happening and what can be done about it. And uh, if we still have time, then I'll get into some other topics, but let's get started. So first off, this latest hot news of the week is that some hackers put together a list of, it was basically a compilation. It's not what I would characterize as a new breach, but they've compiled all this data from a whole bunch of breaches and put them into a script that is easy to grab and to utilize by other hackers as part of a, an automated hack strategy. Right? So if you think about it this way, if they have this input file for an attack, then they can feed that input file into any sort of attack process that they want. Now what's inside of this script or this, you know, this input file, but it is, it's a shell script basically. And what's inside of it is the combination of here's these user accounts, which are typically going to be email addresses and then passwords. For a long time now, I've been a big advocate for businesses to and online systems to stop using email addresses as the account name. And when you look at some of the more secure platforms out there, they allow you to just come up with a username. So your username is not going to necessarily be an email address. Now, you may say, well, that does not mean that any sort of security is improved. And I would argue you may have a point depending upon what was actually captured in a breach. Usually or oftentimes in a breach, usernames and passwords are going to be leaked and it's not always, it's not always going to be, okay, what was the email address that was associated with that? Although you could certainly make an argument that in a significant percentage of the time, all of those details are, are leaked in a breach. So, you know, username, password, email address, I mean, if not the password itself, the password hash, which, you know, given enough horsepower on some computing equipment and whether or not it was properly salted, it could be reversed. You know, there's a lot of complexity there. So ultimately, what can we do about this? Right, that's the, really the meat and potatoes of this. What can we do about this? Well, for years now, I've been harping on this entire approach that you need to be utilizing an identity and access management server. I am really, really against any sort of cloud-hosted, third-party-hosted, third-party-owned password management platform. Why? 
Well, the, it's been very well proven that if you create a giant honeypot like that, the bad guys are going to go after it. And most of those cloud-hosted password management platforms have either gone down because, you know, they're hosted on AWS and, they, and AWS has some sort of an outage. Of course, you have to have an internet connection in order to access them, which that has its disadvantages. And then you're going to be paying some sort of fee for it when you could actually be using a free solution. So like, let's say, for example, you were utilizing a single user. There are multi-user on-premise password management applications as well. They're a little bit more complicated. But let's just say you're using a single user, single application-based password management application. You can use multi-factor authentication with that, typically going to be with something like a YubiKey. I've widely published about this for a long period of time, articles on qualityplusconsulting.com if you are interested in looking up such things. You can easily store that file in your OneDrive account or your you know, iCloud account or wherever like that. So you're talking about a file that is physically present on your local computer, but yet it's synchronized with your cloud storage. So it's available there as well. Now, of course, you need to be making sure that you've got a separate backup of that. So simply having it synchronized to cloud storage is not a backup. It's simply something that assists with availability. You're eliminating counterparty risk when you're utilizing something that's on-premise. You're eliminating this whole problem of you don't have access to it when the internet is down. And you're eliminating the monthly fee problem. All right, I don't really care for a lot of things that are associated with monthly fees. You know, an annual, a reasonable annual fee, I get it. You know, so you just have to be cautious about how you exit a system as well. So I wouldn't use anything that's uh, overly new fandangled. I'd be much more interested in using something that is has very, very long tenure. So Password Safe, for example, was written by Bruce Schneier, who's the inventor of the Blowfish algorithm. And there, I believe, is a, a consortium of individuals who keep that product updated now. But it's very, very mature. It supports YubiKeys, and it's free. And it's very highly sophisticated and reliable. It's very easy to back up and to set policies in there. It's very customizable. It's really feature-rich. So it's free. Why not? I've also published some articles on how to utilize that, how to customize it. And there's certainly other authors of articles on how to for password safe online as well, if you just simply look. With regards to determining what credentials of yours, if any, are publicly accessible on the internet, there are a number of what's called dark web monitoring platforms out there. There's one website called I Have Been Pwned, so that's P-W-N-E-D, I Have Been Pwned, and you can check stuff out there. If you're a WatchGuard customer and you have a WatchGuard cloud account, then you have free access to some of those, uh, those lookups. There really is no one provider that has all of the databases. There are some dark web monitoring services out there that you pay for. 
I'm not really a big fan of them. And I feel like spending money on dark web monitoring is a waste of time when what you should be doing is taking those funds and putting them towards efforts to implement multi-factor authentication on all of your assets. So there are some security researchers who have predicted that 2021 is going to be the year that anything and everything that does not have multi-factor authentication on it is probably going to be breached. And they have a point. So then we get to this question of what exactly is multi-factor authentication? Because the answer to that is more complicated than you think. And there are other non-software-based solutions such as IP access control restrictions at a network layer that are incredibly effective. No one approach is 100% foolproof. That's why you want to utilize many strategies and use them in a layered defense approach. So certainly you could go out to I have been pwned, I think it's .com, and you can do some lookups yourself. If you have a WatchGuard Cloud account, you can do some lookups yourself. You're basically going to be putting your email addresses in or your domain in, and it will give you results about whether or not any credentials for the provided email address have been published on the dark web by hackers. So the reason that I thought this article was very interesting was because it is upping the game. It's making it easier for the bad guys to launch attacks. So if you have any assets that don't have multi-factor authentication on it, that would be something to consider. If you're talking about services like Microsoft 365, we now live in the realm where if you don't have conditional access, and some of the enterprise mobility suite components in place and programmed, then you're not appropriately utilizing that platform. Because again, IP access control restrictions and other conditional access policies are incredibly effective, just incredibly effective. So if you put a conditional access policy on, for example, and it says you can only be accessing this account and the resources accessible by this account if you are initiating that connection on an enrolled asset that meets certain criteria and utilizing an approved application. Then basically, you know, if a connection is attempting to be made from anything that doesn't match that criteria, it's just going to be outright denied. Right? So it doesn't even matter whether or not the bad guys have the username and password. So I would rather all organizations and all, org and all individuals be putting more effort into improving their security posture on a proactive basis rather than spending money for after-the-fact monitoring for dark web monitoring. Because if you're doing dark if you're paying for dark web monitoring, so some username and password is out there. Well, what are you going to do about it? Well, you should be changing your password. So did you need to change your password if you had multi-factor authentication in place? 
well, probably it would be prudent to do so. However, were the bad guys able to get into your account, even if they had the password, when you had appropriate multi-factor authentication in place? Well, no, they couldn't get in. So is there some usefulness for doing some occasional checks on what's going on in terms of dark web breaches and stuff? Yeah, but I would have a hard time paying for a monthly service if it's going to cost you any more than $1 per user per month. So again, if you have a WatchGuard cloud account, that's all included for free as part of the services that you've already paid for. So let's talk about breach disclosure rules being tightened. 2021 is also going to be a year where more regulatory improvements and enforcements come into play. 2020 has already been a year where businesses are not getting contracts because they don't have certain security metrics in place where they have provable attestatable security postures. So for example, if you have a contract that says that you need to produce the results of your last SOC 2 audit or the fact that you've passed a SOC 2 audit. Well, if you don't have a past SOC 2 audit, well, then that particular contract is not going to be accessible to you. And the same thing is applying in the DOD contractor space and the financial services industry. It's really happening all over the place. Now, one thing that I find rather um, disturbing and interesting at the same time is that when you look at a lot of financial services places like, okay, CPAs, accounting firms, tax preparers, really frankly, anyone that handles taxpayer information, which is going to be every single organization out there that either prepares tax returns or has payroll, right? That's pretty much everybody, <laughs> okay? So those organizations, need to be complying with certain IRS regulations. When you look at those IRS regulations, the IRS regulations are specifically referring to the NIST cybersecurity framework and the, the, all the, you know, many of the CIS controls. And this is all stuff that's been in place for, you know, at least 20 years. None of this is new. It is expensive. It is painful, it is difficult, but it is necessary. And the challenge that I think a lot of these organizations face is that they have not priced into their products and services that they are offering to their customer base. They have not priced in the fee structure for having something like a governance and risk management compliance platform. Now granted, most of the GRCs that are out there are obscenely expensive 
and not necessarily what I would characterize as being absolutely necessary. So at the point in time that like, you know, let's say you had an organization with 5,000 employees and you already had a full-time employee who was blowing, you know, so you're paying massive payroll for this person to just blow their time constantly maintaining spreadsheets. Oh yeah, okay, I can justify $600 a month for a GRC at that point. So if that, that's the thing you have to look at. Now, on the other hand, you look at most of the small to medium business market, which is going to be 500 users and under, they don't have a GRC now. So it is actually possible to have what I would call mini GRCs. So it's not actually an official GRC platform, but you can really get to an attestable governance and risk management compliance posture that has the policies, procedures, the monthly reports, the fully automated attestatable fashion. If you were to do something like partner with a company like Quality Plus Consulting, where we have designed that in automation platforms as part of a standard monthly maintenance fee for uh, businesses. So I'll give you some great examples of this. You know you have to do patch management, you know you have to do vulnerability assessment. Even if you're just simply looking at cyber risk insurance, you have to have a provable attestable status for those endpoints, for those assets on a monthly basis. So if you had an audit 12 months ago, frankly, the government, the regulatory agencies, and your insurance company do not give a hoot about what your cybersecurity status was 12 months ago. They don't care. So if you had a penetration test 12 months ago, it's kind of irrelevant at this point. The only thing that actually is functioning now is if you can prove that your organization has engaged in due care and best practices and framework alignment, so cybersecurity framework alignment, on a monthly basis over a period of time. So what that means is, number one, you need to actually have policies and procedures in place. Then you need to have automation in place, driven by and monitored by humans who know how to do that stuff, and having these tool sets in place is very expensive and complicated. And then, having automation in place such that reports that generate that attestable status of your systems, that provable status. And I'm not talking about baloney reports that are like, oh, well, I had somebody put together an Excel spreadsheet. I'm sorry, that doesn't pass the muster. And the reason it doesn't pass the muster is because the way that the regs are specified is that an admin cannot intervene in the generation of that report. So the only way that that report is believable, that it has veracity, is if it's part of a fully automated process. Well, this has to get published into a report collection platform, and they have to be grouped by type of report, and of course, retrievable by type of report, and you have to have a rolling quantity, so a rolling duration of time of retention of these reports. Maybe that's one year. Okay, this is ridiculously complicated. Are you really going to do that on your own?
So, <laughs> you know, I mean, the answer is no. And I haven't seen where a governance and risk management platform is really that financially viable for most of these organizations. I think that you can accomplish everything that I'm talking about without a GRC. And I'm not saying, I'm not against GRCs. I just think that you've got a whole lot of work to do first. There's no point in actually going and getting a GRC until you've gone and done all of that work. So the big change that's happening recently is that there is now a comment period open on a proposed rule that would require all banking organizations and all bank service providers to promptly report on computer security related incidences. And I can pretty well guarantee you this is going to roll down to all of the customers of banks. Because let's say a bank is processing merchant transactions. Well, that's now going to roll into the payment card industry standards. So the breach notification rules are getting ramped up. So first off, you can't have breach notification. If you have to comply with breach notification, you would first have to actually have some idea that you were breached. So you now have monitoring requirements, and then you have to be able to characterize the scope of the breach. And you can't do that if you don't have appropriate logging and monitoring going on amongst other things, right? And then you get into the whole thing of, well, well, now what's my liability in the breach? So you have to prove what you've remediated, what its current existing security posture was. How can you prove that month after month after month you've been making it better? There's all these you know, factors in play. And I'm not seeing any business in the 500 user and under space that is able to handle this on their own. Typically, it's only large enterprises that have staff to do that. And there's very few of us out there that are network security architects, system security architects that also simultaneously understand the governance and risk management space. And that's, you know, it's a problem for the industry that there are there's a major gap in the availability of the people who have that sort of cyber security capabilities. You know, so there's a, a real skills gap there. So that's a, that's a fairly interesting thing that is coming down the pike, and I think it's going to have some major ramifications. And I'm going to move on to this topic of schools being vulnerable to ransomware attacks, amongst other things. Now, IBM did a recent survey. They pulled a whole bunch of uh, they, they pulled a whole bunch of people who engage in uh, internal IT services. So basically, IT staff for a bunch of schools. It was their education ransomware study. If you're interested in looking it up, and they said that. Uh, yeah, they were coming up with why do these cybersecurity risks exist that are unaddressed in these organizations. And I don't agree with everything in the article, but let's go through kind of some of what they, they said. Well, they said, well, we have these video bombing incidences. Now, this is primarily based around Zoom and other online learning platforms that unauthorized parties can gain access to. So that's what video bombing is. 
Then there's the proliferation of the use of personal devices that cause all kinds of problems. They, of course, also have a lack of security personnel. I think that most schools also have a lack of a paradigm that partners them with external security experts. And I, know, I do know that some schools have just completely outsourced secure, just everything, which was probably a good idea, but they fail to tend to maintain that. Like, for example, I know about a, a situation where a very quality managed service provider came into a school, remediated everything, and then, you know, things were going well. <laughs> so someone on the uh, executive management team of the school said, ah, we're going to go with a cheaper provider, and then it all started falling apart after that. You know, so when there are individuals in charge that are making these decisions about, you know, who to partner with, who don't have enough background and skill set in these areas to make an appropriate evaluation, they're going to make bad decisions like that. Uh, one of the arguments that was made by the survey respondents in this IBM education survey was that they claimed that they did not have adequate budget. And I'm going to call bullpucky on that. Now, the reason I call bullpucky on that is, yes, I would argue that it's true that a lot of private schools do not have adequate budget. I do think that private schools do not always effectively utilize the budget that they have because they're trying to have people make decisions who don't have that sort of strategic leadership skill from a, an information technology perspective. So they can just be making bad decisions. They're also very prone to be making poor planning decisions as well, such as, you know, like, okay, well, we need to have a bunch of Chromebooks. Okay, this now means we have to have expanded wireless capacity. Oh, well, you know, the network isn't expanded to do that. And then, oh, well, now we have to do a structured cabling project. So there's this disconnect that can exist between the individuals who know what all the technical prerequisites are as well as the financial cost for getting there. Um, you know, and there's a disconnect between them and the people who are saying, well, we need to have all students on Chromebooks. You know, and then what's a reasonable time frame to get there? In the public education space, what I have experienced is that the schools are loaded with money absolutely brimming with funds but because of the e-rate system there is a tendency to utilize the a particular different bidder on a rather frequent basis and the schools are failing to have an internal architect who is able to do that vendor management and to create an overall overarching long-term stable strategy. So if one year or you know once every three years you bring in a different vendor who's got a different strategy or if you, you're going to use E-rate funds to get your phone system done but the phone system is not designed and implemented by the same people who've designed and implemented the network and who support it, Oh, you're going to have issues. I mean, I've seen it over and over and over. 
So in the real analysis, the only way you get to the lowest total cost of ownership that's the most highly stable, most highly supportable, is if there is a single architect of all of the solutions who can integrate and work with point vendors as needed. And who can also drive the ongoing budget that says, you know, great, we brought in this one vendor to do this particular project, but then we have to make sure that we've got the budget for the ongoing maintenance for that thing. I see that happen all the time too. They fail to set aside in a segregated account on an annual basis the amount of money that they need for ongoing management maintenance and then whatever they need for the next capital expenditure on the equipment or warranty replacement cycle. So most, I mean, unless you have a relationship with a vendor who's going to do that for you, then you need to have an internal consistent architect who does that. And those people are very hard to come by in terms of internal staff, which is why organizations of all shapes, sizes, and flavors should be working with someone, whether they be internal or external, to do that, to have that long-term strategic leadership. So if you don't have a, a high, highly technically capable CIO, get a virtual CIO. And that's the way that you avoid a lot of these problems. You also need somebody that can act as an intercessor between the board of directors and uh, all the vendors and the technology staff. Well, that's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it.